Part three, chapter eleven of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part three, chapter eleven. There, for some weeks, John was a prisoner, with a fractured rib encased in strips of plaster. In your element again, old girl, Mahony chuffed his wife when he met her bearing invalid trays. Oh, it doesn't all fall on me, Richard. She needs a great help sitting with John and keeping him company. Mahony could see it for himself. Oftenest, when he entered the room, it was Jinny's black-robed figure. She was in mourning for her parents, for Mrs. Beamish had sunk under the twofold strain of failure and disgrace, and the day after her death it had been necessary to cut old Beamish down from a nail. Oftenest it was Jinny he found sitting behind a curtain of the tester-bed, watching while John slept, ready to read to him or listen to his talk when he awoke. This service set Polly free to devote herself to the extra cooking, and John was content. "'A most modest and unassuming young woman,' ran his verdict on Jinny. Polly reported it to her husband in high glee. "'Who could have ever believed two sisters would turn out so differently? Tilly to get so—so—well, you know what I mean, and Jinny to improve as she has done. Have you noticed, Richard, she hardly ever, really quite seldom now, drops an H? It must all have been due to Tilly serving in that low bar.' By the time John was so far recovered as to exchange bed for sofa, it had come to be exclusively Jinny who carried into him the dainties Polly prepared. The wife, as usual, was content to do the dirty work. John declared Miss Jinny had the foot of a fay, also that his meals tasted best at her hands. Jinny even succeeded in making Trotty fond of her, and the love of the fat, shy child was not readily won. Entering the parlour one evening, Mahony surprised quite a family scene. John, stretched on the sofa, was stringing cat's cradles. Jinny sat beside him, with Trotty on her knee. On the whole, though, the child did not warm to her father. "'Auntie, can that man take me away from you?' "'That man? Why, Trotty, darling, he's your father,' said Polly, shocked. "'Can he take me away from you and Uncle Papa?' "'He could if he wanted to, but I'm sure he doesn't,' answered her aunt, deftly turning a well-rolled sheet of pastry. And writing her dolly, which she had been dragging upside down, Trotty let slip her fears with the sovereign ease of childhood. From the kitchen Polly could hear the boom of John's deep bass. It made nothing of the lath and plaster walls. Of course, shut up as he was, he had to talk to somebody, poor fellow, and Richard was too busy to spare him more than half an hour of an evening.' Jinny was a good listener. Through the crack of the door Polly could see her sitting, humbly drinking in John's words, and even looking rather pretty in her fair full womanliness. "'Oh, Polly!' she burst out one day, after being held thus spellbound. "'Oh, my dear, what a splendid man your brother is! I feel sometimes I could sink through the floor with shame at my ignorance when he talks to me so.' But as time went on, Mahony noticed that his wife grew decidedly thoughtful, and if John continued to sing Jinny's praises, he heard nothing more of it. He had an acute suspicion what troubled Polly, but did not try to force her confidence. Then one afternoon, on his getting home, she came into the surgery looking very perturbed, and could hardly find words to break a certain piece of news to him. It appeared that not an hour previously Jinny, flushed and tearful, had lain on her neck, confessing her feelings for John, and hinting at the belief that they were returned. "'Well, I think you might have been prepared for something of this sort, Polly,' he said with a shrug, when he had heard her out. "'Convalescence is notoriously dangerous for fanning the affections.' "'Oh, but I never dreamt of such a thing, Richard. 
"'Ginny is a dear good girl and all that, but she's not John's equal. "'And that he can even think of putting her in poor Emma's place. "'What shall I say to him?' "'Say nothing at all. "'Your brother John is not the man to put up with interference.' "'He longs so for a real home again, Polly, darling,' said Jinny, wiping her eyes. "'And how happy it will make me to fulfil his wish. "'Don't let me feel unwelcome and an intruder, dear. "'I know I'm not nearly good enough for him, "'and he could have had the choice of ever such handsome women, "'but he's promised to be patient with me "'and to teach me everything I ought to know.' "'Polly's dismay at the turn of events "'yielded to a womanly sympathy with her friend.' "'It's just like poor little Agnes and Mr. Henry over again,' was her private thought, for she could not picture John stooping to guide and instruct. But she had been touched on a tender spot, that of ambitious pride for those related to her, and she made what Marney called a real turn of attempt to stand up to John, against her husband's express advice. "'For if your brother chooses to contract a misalliance of this kind, it's nobody's business but his own.' "'Upon my word, though, Polly, if you don't take care, this house will get a bad name over the matches that are made in it. You'd better have your spare room boarded up, my dear.' Mahony was feeling particularly rasped by John's hoity-toity behaviour in this connection. Having been nursed back to health, John went about with his chin in the air, and hardly condescended to allude to his engagement, let alone talk it over with his relatives. So Mahony retired into himself— after all, the world of John's mind was so dissimilar to his own that he didn't even care to know what went on in it. "'The fellow has been caught on the hop by a buxom form and a languishing eye,' was how he dismissed the matter in thought. "'I raise my wife to my own station, Mary, and you will greatly oblige me by showing Jane every possible attention,' was the only satisfaction Polly could get from John, made in his driest tone. Before the engagement was a week old, Tilly reappeared— she was to be married from their house on the hither side of Christmas. At first she was too full of herself and her own affairs to let either Polly or Jinny get a word in. Just to think of it, that old cabbage-grower Devine had gone and bought the block of land next to the one Mr. O was building on. She'd lay a bet he would put up a house the dead spit of theirs. Did anyone ever hear such cheek? At the news that was broken to her, the first time she paused for breath, she let herself heavily down on a chair. "'Well, I'm blowed!' was all she could ejaculate. "'Blowed! That's what I am!' But afterwards, when Jinny had left the room, she gave free play to a very real envy and regret. "'In all my life I never did. Jin to be Mrs. John? And as like as not the Honourable Mrs. John before she's done. Oh, Polly, my dear, why ever didn't I wait?' On being presented to John, however, she became more reconciled to her lot. "'He's got a temper, your brother has, or I'm very much mistaken. "'It won't be all beer and skittles for her ladyship, "'for Jin hasn't a scrap of spunk in her, Polly. "'She got so mopey the last year or two "'there was no doing anything with her. "'Now it was just the other way round with me. "'No matter how black things looked, "'I always kept my pecker up. "'Poor Ma used to say I grew more like her every day.' "'And at a still later date.' "'No, Polly, my dear, I wouldn't change places with the future Mrs. T. "'After all, thank you. Not for Joseph. "'I say, she'll need to mind her P's and Q's.' "'For Tilly had listened to John explaining to Jinny what he expected of her, "'what she might and might not do, "'and had watched Jinny sitting meekly by and saying yes to everything. "'There was nothing in the way of the marriage. "'Indeed, did it not take place immediately, "'Jinny would have to look about her for a situation of some kind.' 
and, said John, that was nothing for his wife. His house stood empty, he was very much in love, and pressed for the naming of the day. So it was decided that Polly should accompany Jinny to lodgings in Melbourne, help her choose her trousseau, and engage servants. Afterwards there would be a quiet wedding, by reason of Jinny's mourning, at which Richard, if he could possibly contrive to leave his patience, would give the bride away. Polly was to remain in John's house while the happy couple were on honeymoon to look after the servants. This arrangement would also make the break less hard for the child. Trotty was still blissfully unconscious of what had befallen her. She had learnt to say new mamma parrot-wise without understanding what the words meant. And meanwhile the fact that she was to go with her aunt for a long exciting coach-ride filled her childish cup with happiness. As Polly packed the little clothes, she thought of the night, six years before, when the fat sleeping babe had been laid in her arms. "'Of course it's only natural John should want his family around him again, but I shall miss the dear little soul,' she said to her husband, who stood watching her. "'What you need is a little one of your own wife.' "'Ah, don't I wish I had,' said Polly, and drew a sigh. "'That would make up for everything. Still, if it can't be, it can't.' A few days before the set time John received an urgent summons to Melbourne, and went on ahead, leaving Mahony suspecting him of a dodge to avoid travelling en famille. In order that his bride-elect should not be put to inconvenience, John hired four seats for the three of them. But he might just as well have saved his money, thought Polly, when she saw the coach. Despite their protests, they were packed like herrings in a barrel, had hardly enough room to use their hands. Altogether it was a trying journey. Jinny, worked on by excitement and fatigue, took a fit of hysterics. Trotty, frightened by the many rough strangers, cried and had to be nursed, and the whole burden of the undertaking lay on Polly's shoulders. She had felt rather timid about it before starting, but was obliged to confess she got on better than she expected. A kind old man sitting opposite, for instance, a splitter he said he was, actually undid Jinny's bonnet-strings and fetched water for her at the first stoppage. Polly had not been in Melbourne since the year after her marriage, and was looking forward intensely to the visit. She went laden with commissions. Her lady friends gave her a list as long as her arm. Richard, too, had entrusted her to get him second-hand editions of various medical works as well as a new stethoscope. Thirdly, she had promised old Mr. Ocock to go to Williamstown to meet Miss Amelia, who even now was tossing somewhere on the Indian Ocean, and to escort the poor young lady up to Ballarat. Having seen them start, Mahony went home to drink his coffee, and read his paper in a quiet that was new to him. John's departure had already eased the strain. Then Tilly had been boarded out at the Methodist minister's. Now, with the exit of Polly and her charges, a great peace descended on the little house. The rooms lay white and still in the sun, and though all doors stood open, there was not a sound to be heard but the buzzing of the blowflies around the sweets of the fly-traps. He was free to look as glum as he chose of a morning, if he had neuralgia, or to be silent when worried over a troublesome case. No longer would Miss Tilly's bulky presence and loud-voiced reiterations of her prospects grate his nerves, or John's full-blooded absorption in himself, and poor foolish Jinny's quavering doubts whether she would ever be able to live up to so magnificent a husband, offend his sense of decorum. Another reason he was glad to see the last of them was that in the long run he had rebelled at the barefaced way they made use of Polly, and took advantage of her good nature. She had not only cooked for them and waited on them, he had even caught her stitching garments for the helpless Jinny. 
This was too much. Such extreme obligingness on his wife's part seemed to detract from her personal dignity. He could never, though, have got Polly to see it. Undignified to do a kindness? What a funny, selfish idea! The fact was, there was a certain streak in Polly's nature that made her more akin to all these good people than to him— him with his unsociable leanings towards a hermit's cell, his genuine need of an occasional hour's privacy and silence, in which to think a few thoughts through to the end. On coming in from his rounds, he turned out an old linen jacket that belonged to his bachelor days, and raked up some books he had not opened for an almost equally long time. He also steered clear of friends and acquaintances, went nowhere, saw no one but his patients and Ellen, to whose cookery Polly had left him with many misgivings, took things easy. "'He's so busy reading he never knows what he puts in his mouth. I believe he'd eat his boot-soles if I fried him up neat with a bit of parsley,' she reported over the back fence on Doctor's Odd Ways. During the winter months the practice had, as usual, fallen off. By now it was generally beginning to look up again, but this year, for some reason, the slackness persisted.' He saw how lean his purse was whenever he had to take a banknote from it to enclose to Polly. There was literally nothing doing, no money coming in. Then he would restlessly lay his book aside, and drawing a slip of paper to him set to reckoning and dividing. Not for the first time he found himself in the doctor's awkward quandary, how to be decently and humanly glad of a rise in the health rate. He had often regretted having held to the half-hundred shares he had bought at Henry Ocock's suggestion— had often spent in fancy the sum they would have brought in had he sold when they touched their highest figure. Such a chance would hardly come his way again. After the one fictitious flare-up, poorer punkers had fallen heavily. The first main prospect drive, at a depth of three hundred and fifty feet, had failed to strike the gutter, and nowadays they were not even quoted. Thus had ended his single attempt to take a hand in the great game. One morning he sat at breakfast and thought over his weekly epistle to Polly. In general this chronicled items of merely personal interest. The house had not yet been burnt down, her constant fear when absent. Another doctor had got the asylum. He himself stood a chance of being elected to the committee of the district hospital. Today, however, there was more to tell. The English mail had come in, and the table was strewn with foreign envelopes and journals. Besides the usual letters from relatives, one in a queer, illiterate hand had reached him, the address scrawled in purple ink on the cheapest notepaper. Opening it with some curiosity, Mahony found that it was from his former assistant, Long Jim. The old man wrote in a dismal strain. Everything had gone against him. His wife had died. He was out of work and penniless and racked with rheumatism. Oh, it was a cruel climate!' Did he stop in England, only the house remained to him, he'd end in a pauper's grave. But he believed if he could get back to a scrap of warmth and the sun he'd be good for some years yet. Now he'd always known Dr. Mahony for the kindest, most liberal of gentlemen, the happiest days of his life had been spent under him on the flat, and if he'd only give him a lift now there was nothing he wouldn't do to show his gratitude. Doctor knew a bit about him, too. Here he couldn't seem to get on with folk at all. They looked crooked at him and just because he'd once been spunky enough to try his luck overseas. Mahony shored and smiled, then wondered what Polly would say to this letter. She it was who had been responsible for packing the old man off. Unfolding the star, he ran his eyes over its columns. He had garnered the chief local news, and was skimming the mining intelligence, 
when he suddenly stopped short with an exclamation of surprise, and his grip on the paper tightened. There it stood, black on white. Bora Punkers had jumped to three pounds per share. What the dickens did that mean? He turned back to the front sheet to find if any clue to the claims of renewed activity had escaped him, but sought in vain. So bolting the rest of his breakfast, he hurried down to the town to see if on the spot he could pick up information with regard to the mysterious rise. The next few days kept him in a twitter of excitement. Pora Punkers went on advancing, not by leaps and bounds as before, but slowly and steadily, and threw off a dividend. He got into bed at night with a hot head from wondering whether he ought to hold on or sell out, and inside a week he was off to consult the one person who was in a position to advise him. Henry Ocock's greeting resembled an embrace. It evidently means a fortune for him, and all trifling personal differences were forgotten in the wider common bond. The lawyer virtually ordered Mahony to sit in until he gave the word. By this time poor Punkers had passed their previous limit and even paid a bonus. It was now an open secret that a drive undertaken in an opposite direction to the first had proved successful. The lead was scored and seamed with gold. Ocock spoke of the stone, specimens of which he had held in his hand, declared he had never seen its equal. But when the shares stood at fifty-three pounds each, Mahony could restrain himself no longer, and in spite of Ocock's belief that another ten days would see a coup, he parted with forty-five of the half-hundred he held— Leaving the odd money with the lawyer for reinvestment, he walked out of the office the possessor of two thousand pounds. It was only a very ordinary late spring day, the season brought its light by the score. A pale azure sky, against which the distant hills looked purple, above these a narrow belt of cloud, touched in its curves to the same hue. But to Mahony it seemed as if such a perfect day had never dawned since he first set foot in Australia. His back was eased of its burden, and like Christian on having passed the walls known as salvation, he could have wept tears of joy. After all these years of pinching and sparing, he was out of poverty's grip. The suddenness of the thing was what staggered him. He might have drudged until his hair was grey. It was unlikely he would ever, at one stroke, have come into possession of a sum like this. And that whole day he went about feeling a little more than human, and seeing people, places, things— through a kind of beatific mist. Now, thank God, he could stand on his own legs again, could relieve John of his bond, pay off the mortgage on the house, insure his life before it was too late. And everything done, he would still have over a thousand pounds to his credit. A thousand pounds! No longer need he thankfully accept any and every call, or reckon sourly that if the leakage on the roof was to be mended, he must go without a new surtout. Best of all, he could now begin in earnest to save. First, though, he allowed himself two very special pleasures. He sent Polly a message on the electric telegraph to say that he would come down himself to fetch her home. In secret he planned a little trip to Snapper Point. At the time of John's wedding he had been unable to get free. This would be the first holiday he and Polly had ever had together. The second thing he did was to indulge the love of giving that was innate in him, and of giving in a somewhat lordly way. He enjoyed the broad grin that illumined Ellen's face at his unlooked-for generosity, Jerry's red-stammered thanks for the gift of the cob the boy had long coveted. It did him good to put two ten-pound notes in an envelope and inscribe Ned's name on it. He'd never yet been able to do anything for these poor lads. He also, without waiting to consult Polly, fearing indeed that she might advise against it, 
sent off the money to Long Jim for the outward voyage, and a few pounds over. For there were superstitious depths in him, and at this turn in his fortunes it would surely be of ill omen to refuse the first appeal for help that reached him. Polly was so much a part of himself that he thought of her last of all. But then it was with moist eyes, she who had never complained should of a surety not come short. And he dropped asleep that night to the happy refrain, "'Now she shall have her piano, God bless her, the best that money can buy.'" End of Part 3 Chapter 11